0: Good morning to everyone here in the room and to everyone who's worshiping with us online as we enter into this Thanksgiving week and prepare for the season of Advent that is quickly upon us. And and as I've been thinking about our our time together today, what's been coming to my mind is actually this this Bob Dylan song from 1964 in which he's saying, the times, they are a-changing, certainly the times in which we live, they are a changing in so many ways and regardless of how old you are, what decades you've lived through, we each have times in our lives where we have seen significant change, significant advancements, whether it's technology, whether it's communication, you know, whether it's, it's travel. My father, uh, was born in the 1930s and was raised in Franklin County, Virginia. And I've heard he, and he grew up on a farm, so there's lots of stories about how things changed on the farm and what was there and what wasn't there. And I particularly remember his story of, uh, of the phone, how, you know, they were on a party line, you know, where everybody shared this, you really had no privacy when it came to, to the phone call, it was shared by a certain number of people in that area. And he remembers when they got their dedicated personal phone. And they no longer had to communicate through the party line. And so when he told that story, you know, that, that took me back to some of my memories growing up. You know, uh, of that, that big uh, green phone that sat on the wall in the kitchen. And it had a cord that I think was about 87 feet in length, because it had to stretch across the kitchen. If mom was doing something and growing up in a household with three sisters, they always had to have privacy when they were on the phone. So that cord had to stretch into another room to where they could do that. And then we went to clunky bag phones, you know, that sat in the car, you know, and then, and then we all, you know, landed on, on these things right here. And it's, it's amazing how different life has become simply because of the advancements in the phone system and, and communication you know our children are 26, 24 and 21 and they don't remember a time in their lives where they couldn't reach mom and dad because mom and dad carried one of these in their pocket or their purse they could always reach us and I'm, I'm reminded of one time when, when Paul and I, we were living in Waynesboro at the time and uh, we had gone to San Antonio uh, for a trip, and, and my parents, uh, my mother, my father, they came to Waynesboro to, to take care of our kids, and they were, I think maybe 14, 12, 9, somewhere in, in that vicinity, and so we're in San Antonio, and Paula's phone rings, and, you know, and the caller ID says it's the home phone, and that, you know, that was back in the day when you actually had a landline, you, you had an actual phone in the house, and so she picked it up, and what wasn't my mother, what wasn't my father. Our youngest son, Zachary. Hey, mom, where can I find a deck of cards? And we're like, your brother, your sister, and two adults are in the house with you. Ask them where you can find a deck of cards. You know, when Steve Jobs developed this in 2007, just 13 years ago, and they're on their 12th or 13th iteration now, times are changing. We think about this simple yet important device. You leave the house, you're thinking keys, wallet, phone. You're going to make sure you've got all of that with you. You know, and as a, as a former banker in a previous life, you know, I've not been in a bank branch maybe a handful of times in the past two or three years because I can do all of my banking right here. Unless I need some foreign currency or wire transfer or something like that that takes me into the bank. On the rare occasion, somebody sends me a check. I now take a picture of it and deposit it to my bank through there. Times. They are changing. I remember a couple years ago when my daughter and I, we were on a trip down to the University of Georgia. She was thinking about grad school and we were making visits and she was trying to decide where she was going to go and so we're on our way to the University of Georgia and we're in South Carolina and you know we need a gas, a stretch break, so we we pull off, um, rural South Carolina, pull into a a 7-Eleven there, and in the grassy area, right beside the 7-Eleven, I watched a young man get, get out of his car, and he spread his prayer blanket out in the grass. It was a man of Muslim faith, and he prayed. Now, growing up in eastern North Carolina, that was nothing that I had ever witnessed as a child growing up. Yet here, the grassy area of 7-Eleven in rural South Carolina off I-85 and I thought, wow, we would have very, we have very different perspectives on faith. But how wonderful to live in a place where a young man in the grass beside a 7-Eleven could pray times, they are changing. Think about the the biblical narrative and God's relationship with God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, and the ups and downs they had, the faithfulness and the waywardness, the covenants that were made, the covenants that were broken, the the times that they humbled themselves and followed and worshipped God, and then those times that they were full of arrogance, and they went away from God and worshipped other gods. Story after story of the times, they are a changing. And so for us this morning, we're going to begin with a single verse of scripture that's going to lead us into this conversation about how we navigate, as people of faith, these times that are changing. And now this verse that we're going to begin with, I'm, I'm willing to bet that it's not one that regularly pops up on your daily devotionals. We're going to be in the Old Testament. It's 1 Chronicles chapter 12, and it's a, it's a single verse uh, that we're going to read together. And it's where's chapter 12, here we go. And it says, from the tribe of Issachar. There were 200 leaders. All of these men understood the signs of the time and knew the best course for Israel to take. Of Issachar, those who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kindred under their command. Now, here's the context. In chapter 11, if we were to back up, David is the king. David has taken his men, and they've marched to Jerusalem, and they have overtaken the fortress of Zion. You know that hymn we sing, Marching to Zion. So David and his men, they have overtaken this. They have set up their residence. Hence, Jerusalem becomes known as the city of David. And then all of the tribes are making their way to David. In the 11th and 12th chapters, we get the accounts of all of the tribes, all of the men, all of the the people groups that are coming to gather around David in this nation that is ready to rise. If we were to read further into chapter 13, after everybody has assembled, David in this, this new nation that is Come back together, they go, and they retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. Remember in our our lampstand series that when Moses built the tabernacle, part of the reason for it to be built was for worship, but in it was the Ark of the Covenant that that held the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. The the, the people that they had actually lost it. They had been overtaken, and the Ark of the Covenant had been taken from them. So David and his fortified nation of Israel, they go and they retrieve the Ark, of the covenant, and they bring it back to Jerusalem. Now Issachar was the fifth son of Jacob, so he was one of the leaders of the 12 tribes of Jacob, those 12 tribes made up the nation of Israel, and so when Moses led them all into the promised land, and and it was divvied up among all the tribes, Issachar and, and his group, they got 16 cities and the surrounding kind of towns and areas and they grew they were known for their wisdom scripture tells us of how they faithfully followed the wise female judge Deborah into battle overcame the Canaanite control in their lives and they grew to be 90,000 and. And this is the group that is known for the wisdom. And they have come to join David to reunite the nation of Israel. So from the New Living Translation, this is how that particular verse, that 32nd verse, is translated. From the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders. All these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. Think about that combination. They understood the sign of the times and they knew how to live into them. They knew what course they needed to take. That is a powerful combination any group of people to have to understand the times and to know where to go. So for us, as followers of Jesus in the year 2020, what does it mean for us to understand the signs of the time? These times that are a-changing. It, it means more than, than just knowing the headlines. It means more than knowing just what's going on. It's, you know, what are the events? What are the trends? What are the currents that are flowing? What's the world view? What is shaping us, molding us, forming us into the people that we are? Understanding that we are uniquely positioned within the wider story of what's taking place in God's world. So if we understand the times, and and I think, I think we do, I think we understand the times in which we live. You know, the past couple of weeks we've mentioned some of the research that's been done by the Pew Research Group as it relates to to trends, to what's taking place in the faith communities. We understand from their surveys that that 28% of adult Americans have abandoned the faith of their childhood They've either adopted another faith or they're religiously unaffiliated. They have no faith. That means that 25% of all American adults are religiously unaffiliated. No faith. And then down a little deeper, the millennial generation. Those born between 1981 or so to 1995, 96. You know, those that are 24, 25 up to about, you know, 38, 39. 35% religiously unaffiliated. Over a third of that young adult generation religiously unaffiliated. So I think we understand the times in which we live. We understand what's happening in the faith community. We understand what's happening politically. We understand what's happening racially. We understand what's happening as it relates to this virus. We see it. We understand it. The question is, the men of Issachar understood it, and they knew the path. They knew what course to take. And so the question for us is do we know the same? Do we know the path we're to take? And I believe we do. I believe scripture has given us guidance in how we interpret the times that are changing and how we move into them. And so I'm going to share a few things that I believe can point us in that direction. And the first of these is being gospel-centric. We have to have the gospel at the very center of everything we do. That's where we have to start. As people of faith, being gospel-centric grounds us And informs the directions that we go. And and I want you to, um, want to share this passage with you. It's out of Acts chapter 10. It, It begins with verse 34. Then Peter began to speak to them. He's speaking to the Gentiles. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead, and the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. Now, if you're ever on a mission trip somewhere and it gets sprung on you that you need to preach or teach and you're not prepared. If you're ever in a conversation with someone who's starting to explore the gospel and you're trying to think, how, how can I talk about this concisely? This is where you go. These ten verses succinctly explain the gospel. That Jesus healed and loved, took care of people. He died. He was raised from the dead. And he appeared to us. This is the gospel. And so when we talk about being gospel-centric, we have got to lean into this. You know, we, we've spoken to over several weeks about our faith and how faith is more than something we just believe. It's more than something we just hang on to. Our faith has to inform us. It has to be the perspective. It has to be the posture that we take. And it begins with the gospel. We have to be gospel-centric. And when we lay that over top of, of these words of Jesus in the seventh chapter of Matthew, uh, verses uh, 24 and 25, Jesus speaking. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded. On rock. I love these two verses. Because Jesus is so clear. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the gospel. So he's saying for all of you who hear these words of mine. You know some people have a Bible. It's a a red letter edition. Where in the gospels every word that Jesus spoke is, is in red. Those are the words that Jesus is speaking of. Everyone who hears those words of mine, my words, and acts on them, you can understand them, you can hear them, are you going to act on them? And when you act on them, your house, your life, is built on a foundation of rock. And the other part of this verse, I mean, this is, These two verses in itself are such a wonderful sermon that we we won't get into today. But notice he says, when the rains and wind come. Didn't say they weren't coming. They're coming. Just because you're a person of faith, you don't don't get an exempt card for that. You don't get to pass over that. When the rain and the winds come and beat on your house, your foundation is solid Because you heard these words of Jesus and you acted on them. That's what it means to be gospel-centric. Hearing the words of Jesus, and acting on them. Had an Old Testament professor in seminary who loved to preach the book of Amos. And it is a hard book, because, you know, Amos is is telling the people all that they're doing wrong, and he summarized Amos this way. Because in Amos, God tells people that their worship is unacceptable. Basically, Amos is love God, and live like it. The people said they love God, but man, they weren't living like it. And this is what Jesus is saying here Hear my words and act on them. Love Jesus and live like it. That's gospel centric. That's going to be at the heart of who we are. And when we're gospel centric, part of what comes out of that then is we have to be relationally rich. Now, We live in an iPhone, iPad, iPod world, and these are wonderful devices, but do you hear the common theme? I, I, I. We live in a we world. Jesus understood that. Jesus understood that we didn't live in an I world, we live in a we world. And that's why Jesus was so intentional in building a authentic relationships because he understood that these words of his that he wanted people to hear and act on needed to be rooted in a relationally rich environment And time and time again we see Jesus doing that very thing Mark chapter 3 verses 31 through 35 Mark 3, 31 Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus just completely redefined family. You know, back in his day, family was so important because there were structures within the family based on boy-girl, time and birth order. That was so very important. Jesus just completely redefined that. And in redefining family, he redefined relationships. And he's pointing out to us that we've got to be relationally rich. We've got to be intentional. We've got to be authentic in how we relate to one another. The way we relate to one another is by loving Jesus and living like it. We've got to be gospel-centric. And we've got to be relationally rich in the way that we carry forth that message of Jesus. If you want to do an interesting exercise, t- take the Gospel of Luke. And go through and-, and take note of every occasion when Jesus is eating or drinking with someone. We could easily call Luke the Gospel of the table. Because Jesus built relationships around the table. That's where he taught. That's where he discipled. That's why, you know, ministries like Fresh Expressions are at the forefront of of dinner church. Understanding that authentic relationships built around the table lead to those spiritual conversations. We've got to be gospel-centric. and We've got to be relationally rich. And then finally, we've got to have a heart for the not yet. Yeah, as people of faith, we believe that God is calling us forth and the things that we're unsure of. And the things that we've not thought of. And the things we've not anticipated. That's part of the heart of the gospel. It's having a heart for the not yet. And that's the people that have not yet experienced the gospel. 35% of a young generation have either not experienced or experienced it and said, "Mm." we've got to have a heart for the not yet. We've got to find a way to bless each other along the journey of life. We've got to find a way to celebrate with one another what God is doing in our lives. We've got to anticipate and have a heart for what has not yet taken place. Let's think about the church. the, The church as an institution. You know, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail because of the bride that is the church. So in the end, we're going to win. Now, every church, little C church along the way, may or may not, but big C church is going to win. And I think for us, in the room and online, we understand and appreciate the value of being together, as different as it is today. Being together to worship together, to have discipleship together, to have fellowship together, to have kids ministry and youth ministry. We understand the value and importance of being together. But when we think about the primary purpose of the church, our primary purpose for existence is for the not yet. It's for those that have yet to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we make decisions in the church, Pastor search, budget, kids ministry, youth ministry, worship—all that goes into it—is it for us? Some, yeah, should be, can be. Primary focus is the not yet. We gotta have a heart for the not yet, and, and Jesus gave us a command. To this in, in the gospel of, of Matthew the 28th chapter the 18th verse Jesus has been crucified he's resurrected he's appeared to the disciples he's about to ascend to his heavenly father and he shares these words we call him the great commission and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus didn't say, sit. Jesus didn't say, wait. Jesus said, go. That's what it means to have a heart for the not yet. We've got to go in our neighborhoods and into our community. The times, they are a changing. And it can be so unsettling. None of us truly like change. None of us want things to change. Let's be honest. But it's the nature of life. And it says so much about who we are, individually and collectively, and how we handle the transitions of life. The men of Issachar understood the sign of the times, and they knew how to live into it. I think we do too truly believe if we will be gospel centric relationally rich and have a heart for the not yet we might not know the destination but we certainly know the direction And sometimes that's what we need my prayer for you individually for us collectively This will be the people God has called us to be. And we will live it for all that we're worth. Let's pray. God, your your word, your son Jesus, the experiences of the men of Issachar, the nation of Israel, Gosh, how they're wound together and bound by your love and your grace, by the direction you provide in our lives. And so our prayer this morning is that these changing times won't instill within us an anxiousness and an uncertainty, but we will be emboldened to go and be the people you have called us to be. Gospel centric, relationally rich, and with a heart for the not yet. All of this we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.